Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. The title of the sermon is, Are You Taking the Lord's Name in Vain? Uh, and, and like Pastor has often said, you know, you know, I didn't call Sister Melanie and say, oh, you know, what y'all think? Could you, you got a song about God's name? You know, slide that in the deck or anything like that. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that, right? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being intentional about the, the order of, of worship so that there's some themes that are running through. So it we gets, our, gets our minds kind of thinking on the right things. But, um, but the Lord is, is moving. I, I believe he's moving. Look, uh, this is, this is going to sound... Um, just kind of funny, but I got to share this story. It, you know, we have a dog, and our dog, Lexi, is, is a great dog. She's super friendly, super nice. She's the kind of dog that'll make other people want to get a dog when they, in, and when they meet with her. And I'm not just saying this. This is, Lexi's a, a really neat dog. And so when the girls are home, especially Jayla, she sleeps outside the crate. But when it's just me and Karen, Lexi's on that crate life. She knows kind of <laughs> what it's going to be. But this one particular night, uh, Hannah was like, you know, I, I just, man, I think um, I'm going to let her sleep in the crate instead of in the room because, uh, you know, Lexi's moving around. She's doing a lot of things. And so sometimes it's not a, a restful night's sleep. And so I said, yeah, put her in the crate. That's no problem. So she's in the crate. She's sleeping. Over in the night, she barks. I jump up, right? And I'm like, what is going on? She's long, she's nine years old. She's long since been housebroken. So I get up, let her out. She goes outside, does her business and everything, comes back, and I put her right back in the crate because I'm like, you know, this is, this is where you're going to be tonight, especially if you in the middle of the night needing to go out. I don't know what else may be coming. Put her back in the crate. And so I then try to go back to sleep, but I can't, right? My mind is kind of racing a little bit, and I've been struggling with a sermon topic all leading up to this Sunday. Pastor had told me I was going to be preaching about a month ago, and I was just kind of like, all right, Lord, you know, any minute you want to tell me what the topic needs to be, I'm ready, right? And he was just holding his cards kind of close to his chest, so that was creating some anxiety. So that night, it's about 12-something, oh, it's about 1-something, actually, and, uh, you know, can't sleep, my mind starts running, and I actually start hearing from the Lord. And I know, you, you know, I'm not talking about some new revelation. I'm just talking about this, the Spirit began working in me what it is He wanted me to preach. And so I started kind of piecing it together, and there was a voice that said, you know what, Charles, you probably should get on up and do the sermon right now. In the moment that you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. <laughs> but I said... John, I was like, no, <laughs> it's one, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning. I, I, I'll remember it. And so I started drifting off asleep again. Well, as I'm sleeping, I think I'm sleeping good. Guess who barks again? Lexi. And then she barks, a quick, sharp bark, bark. I jump up, right? No one else heard it in the house. I jump up. I go, she's standing up in the crate looking at me. I'm looking at her. I'm like, what's, what's going on? I open it up, let her out. She goes outside, and she just gets out and just starts sniffing around the yard, just, you know, listening and, and just, you know, looking around. It's 2.30 in the morning, 2.45, something like that. And so I'm like, okay, I'm up now, right? I, I done jumped up twice. 
sleep has, has fled me. And so then in that moment, I say, well, I guess I'll go ahead and work on this sermon, Pete. So I bring Lexi in, and I'm like, Lexi, uh, you still need to be in the crate because I don't want you to think that just you bark and get you out of the crate. So I put her back in the crate, and I go down to the office to work on my sermon. That's about 3, 3.30 in the morning. All the way now into wake-up time, do you know Lexi did not bark not once? Not once. She didn't bark twice within the course of an hour. And when I put her back into the place that she wanted to get out of, she is silent as all get out. And it just confirmed to me, I said, okay, Lord, I see what you're doing. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that seems like a stretch, but I, I knew, right? I was like, you wanted me to be up so I could start working out. And the moment I was hearing from you, and, and it was almost like he was saying, look, you've been so worried about what you're going to preach about. And then the moment I start telling you what you're going to preach about, you tell me, I'll get to it in the morning. He said, no, you're going to get to it tonight. And if, if, uh, if you don't have the wherewithal to get up, he said, I've got uh, one of my creations just down the hall from you that I'm going to tell Lexi, just speak a word, Lexi, and <laughs> quicken his spirit to get up. And so here we are. So this, sir, I say all that to say that this sermon is brought to you by Lexi <laughs> the Samoyed under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's an introduction for you, ain't it? You ain't never heard an introduction about a holy dog. Yeah. But from a uh, scripture reference point, we're going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 7 specifically. Very familiar verse. Super familiar. Uh, crazy familiar. You guys could quote this verse on your own, of course. <clears throat> Exodus 20, verse 7, and reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, uh, you would find these words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the lesson aimed very simply for us today is that as believers, we would take time to consider how well what we think, how well what we say, and how well what we do represents the Lord God to a world that desperately needs a clear presentation of who he is. Thank you. <laughs> All that technology. Yeah. So let's jump into this, right? For just a little bit of a scriptural context, the children of Israel, right, are moving through the wilderness. Uh, they've recently been set free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And at the beginning of chapter 19, just a chapter before where we are in the text, uh, they come into the wilderness of Sinai and they set up camp at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And according to the text now, it's been about three months since they were set free out of bondage in, e in Egypt. And God calls to Moses from the mountain, and this is in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, and he tells Moses to tell the people, Listen at this, that if they will obey his voice, if they will keep his covenant, then they will be his people and he will be their God. He will make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses takes that message back down the, mount, the mountain, back to the elders and to the people, and the Israelites agree, and it says that they say that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
Yeah. So Moses goes back to God, and he lets God know, hey, look, the people responded positively to your proposition. This, this relationship that you want to enter into with these folks, they said, we're down for that. And God says, cool, let me tell you what we're going to do now. In three days, he says, I'm going to make my presence known on this mountain. I'm going to speak to you, Moses. You're going to speak to me, and it's going to give you credibility amongst the people that you are my voice to them, right? And he says, now, in the meantime, go and tell the people to get ready, consecrate themselves, and wash their clothes, abstain from any sexual relationships with your husband and your wives because you need to get yourself ready because God is about to show up. God also tells Moses, look, now when my presence descends upon the mountain, don't let anybody come up on the mountain. Don't let them bum rush the mountain. Don't let them touch the mountain. Because if they do, you need to put them to death. Hmm. Now Moses goes back. He tells the people everything that God said. He tells them what to do to get ready for God's appearance on the mountain. And on the morning of the day three, there's thunder there's lightning, there's a thick cloud that covers the mountain, and the text says that the people in the camp trembled. They got scared. They got so scared, right, that when Moses leads them out, right, out of the camp to go meet God, they eventually tell Moses, look, uh, why don't you just go talk to him and come back and tell us what he said. But Moses leads them out of the camp, God responds with thunderclaps and lightning, and then God calls Moses up onto the mountaintop, and he reminds him to tell the people, don't come up on the mountain. And then he tells them, instead, you go get your brother Aaron, come on up here, and I got some stuff I need to tell you. So now, right, then at the beginning now of Exodus 20 is where it says, then God spoke all these things. And it is safe to assume that what we're being told now in Exodus 20 is what God was telling Aaron and Moses back on the mountaintop in Exodus 19. And as you know, right, Exodus 20 is where we get the listing out of the Ten Commandments. Now, it has been said, now as we kind of rehearse the text a little bit here, we've got the background, let's look now at the text a little bit more. It has been said that the commandments... Verses 2 through 11 are vertical, and that the commandments in verses 12 through 17 are horizontal. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that verses 2 through 11 deal with how people are to relate to God, while verses 12 through 17 deal with how people are to relate to one another. All right? And in the verses related to God, I think there is a progression that actually leads up to verse 7 where he says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Let's just look at this real quick. Verse 2, what we see here, right, is a reminder of who God is to them. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what it is that I did. Verse 3, he goes on, And because I am the God who did that for you, you shall have no other gods before me. That makes sense. It's almost like God says, hey, look, I know you live in a culture where there's a lot of different options, but only one of the options saved you out of Egypt. So don't you go run into none of those other options and put them in front of me given that I'm the one 
who actually heard your cry and delivered you out of bondage. I'm talking to somebody somewhere. That's good stuff. <laughs> so verse 3, he says, look, don't have any other gods before me. And then verses 4 through 6, he says, and to make sure that you aren't tempted to place any other gods in front of me, don't you make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, what is on earth, or what is in the water. <laughs> and then we get to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So let's unpack this verse a little bit that we're all very familiar with and, and, and see, right, if we can glean either some new and or deeper understanding of this verse that we find here. Now, look, I know that when we hear this verse, our minds instantly go to using the Lord's name as an expression. That's our default. That's what we kind of think about as a cliche or even as part of a curse, heaven forbid. And we all know what those are. I'm not going to list these out for you. Uh, and look, I, I definitely believe that as uh, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we uh, should not, right, use names like God, Jesus, or Christ casually or crassly. I believe that this verse, while it encompasses this behavior, it is also aiming, though, at something much deeper, something a bit more significant. So let's look back uh, at, the, at the action that we're told not to perform. In other words, right, what's the verb that God is prohibiting us from doing? Well, if we look at the original Hebrew, what we'll see is that this verb in the Hebrew is nasal. And many of our Bibles render this as to take, right? And that's not incorrect, uh, but, but what this rendering does, right, is it narrows it into our kind of current semantic range and options of what to take means and, and what its applications are. So if we look back at the verb nasal in the original uh, Hebrew, it means to take, but it also has some other options in the semantic range of definitions. It also can mean to take away or to lift, or to carry, or even to bear. Hmm. So think about it like this. 23 years ago, I talked about this. On December 18th, I had the opportunity, the immense fortune and the blessing to marry my wife, Karen. Now, I I've got some slides. Are you going to be able to help me out, Paul? Paul says, yes, he can help me out. So let's, let's see, what's this first slide here as I walk you through uh, what's going on here? Now, <clears throat> this is this slender young gentleman here on your right, that's me. And at this point, 23 years ago, December 18th, I'm, I'm, I'm looking down the aisle of the church. I am Charles Edward Wright II, and I'm looking, waiting for my bride-to-be to come down the aisle. Now, as I'm looking down the aisle and waiting for my bride-to-be to come, Paul, if you wouldn't mind, <clears throat> here she comes. Look at her, y'all. I'm trying not to get too distracted. I'm trying to keep on, on point here. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that when I'm standing up there looking, this is, I see her coming down being escorted by her father, and as she's coming down the aisle, she's coming down the aisle as Karen Ray Turner. Hmm. That's Karen Ray Turner coming down the aisle. You'll pick it up. Next slide. 
We go through the ceremony. We, we go through the process. The pastor pronounces some things. He tells me I can salute my bride. I give her a kiss. We turn around, and then he says this. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a great honor, and it's a privilege to now introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. Charles Edward Wright II. So Karen walked down the aisle to me as Karen Ray Turner, but we depart she departs as Karen Ray Wright. She has taken my name as a part of this ceremony. Hmm. And, and what we see, right, is that now her taking my name comes with some expectations. She came up the aisle as Karen Ray Turner, but now we're walking out as Charles and Karen Wright. She has taken my name. And when we take all of that into consideration, I think it actually begins to paint a more convincing picture that when God says, you shall not nassau my name in vain, that he had something deeper in mind than just not saying his name when things don't go well. Now, remember back in Exodus 19, right, through Moses, God tells the people that if they obey his voice and keep his covenant, then they will be his people, he will be their God, and what kind of people will they be, Pete? Well, he tells them, they'll be a kingdom of priests, they'll be a holy nation, so being a kingdom of priests and being a holy nation implies more than just not using the Lord's name when I stub my toe. It's more than just not using the Lord's name when I'm disappointed. It's more than just not using the Lord's name when I'm frustrated. Uh, but there is a higher calling, a deeper commitment that I believe God is conveying in this command. God is saying, you are my kingdom priests. You are my holy nation. Therefore, you shall not take, you shall not lift, you shall not carry, you shall not bear my name in vain. So now that we've opened this commandment up a bit, we've broadened its scope and its depth, the question we should now be chewing on next is, why is God's name so important to him? <laughs> Scripture tells us a couple of things about what God's name should be. First, it tells us that his name should be praised. Psalm 135 and 3 says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name. It also tells us that his name should be blessed. Psalm 103 and 1, bless the Lord my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Scripture tells us that his name also should be feared. Psalm 102 and 15 says, so the nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth, your glory. And then for those of you that are saying, well, Charles, those are all Old Testament uh, scripture references. I'm a new covenant kind of a believer. Well, Matthew in 6 and 9 tells us that his name should be hallowed. Jesus himself says, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's just to list a few, right? And, and, and I know that there are sometimes some voices that come from outside of the faith that would argue that, look, this fixation, this fixation that God has on his name is evidence 
that the God of the Bible is narcissistic. He's egotistical. He's self-centered. He, he thinks only of himself. It's all about him. What kind of God would demand all this praise and worship? <laughs> he's so concerned with how he looks, with his reputation, with him getting the credit. But I don't think that we have to think too hard in our own personal lives on why God's name and how we bear it would be important to him. I mean, just think about your own name and the care and the concern you have for your name. Think about what we do to put into making sure that we have a good name, either by my own efforts or by what I do and how I interact with others or even by extension. For instance, all my parents out here who have children. What is it, right? Everybody knows that when those little crumb snatchers head outside of your house, that we tell them all the time, now look, you better act like you got some sense when you get to wherever they're going to. And look, yeah, on one hand, that's about them being respectable, being well-behaved, and, and, and being, uh, you know, not being menaces to society. But on the other hand, there's a part of us that says, look, when you leave this house, you're bearing my name. And how their behavior is a reflection on us. It communicates something to others about the quality and the effectiveness of our parenting. Now, when we get in here, don't you embarrass me when we get in here. I, Karen used to always say with the girls, she said, when you leave from here, you need to look like somebody loves you at home. Right? So if you and I already have a sense and a desire of having and wanting to have a good name and, and having those who bear our name represent us well, come on, how much more with the God who spoke everything that is into existence, the one who holds tomorrow in his hands, who heals the brokenhearted, who counts the number of the stars and names them one by one, who is abundant in strength, whose understanding is infinite, who supports the afflicted, who brings down the wicked, who covers the heavens with clouds, who causes the rain to fall on the earth, who makes grass grow on the mountains, who opens up the eyes of the blind, who who raises up those who are bowed down, who loves the righteous, who protects the stranger, who forgives sin, how much more so would one like that be concerned with his name? And hopefully, hopefully, when we think about it like that, it becomes clear why God's command is that his people, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation would not take, would not carry, would not bear his name. A name that should be praised and blessed and feared and hallowed would not bear that name in a way that instead associates it with emptiness and meaninglessness and worthlessness. Now, hopefully, 
If I've done my job well, if I didn't get in God's way, laying all this out and presenting the argument that taking the Lord's name in vain means more than just casually using his name in curses and in exclamations, then at this point of the sermon, you should be at least a little bit curious, asking and saying, well, okay, Elder Wright, uh, then in what ways do we actually take the Lord's name in vain? And I would say, you ask excellent questions. Well, primarily, we take the Lord's name in vain in three different ways. By what we do, by what we say, and by what we think. Mm. <laughs> so let's walk through these and uh, <clears throat> let the Lord do what he's going to do. So in my early example of my marriage, right, it would be very problematic if after the pastor announced, I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. Charles and Karen Wright, if Karen continued to behave as though she were still Karen Turner. <laughs> and not now Karen Wright. If she still believed that she was an individual and not as one who had to be now joined to another, if she still believed that she was just a, an island unto herself and not one who was in a covenant relationship, if she continued to behave as one whose actions only affected her and did not impact another, then we would have a problem. Let's look for a moment at Galatians 5 and verses 16 and 17. Hmm. And this is Paul writing to the church <clears throat> in Galatia, and he says, but I say, hmm, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other. And what we see here, right, is Paul is making it very clear that how we walk, or in other words, how we live, what we do is an indication of whether we're operating according to our flesh, according to our old ways, according to a, as, an, as a disconnected individual, or if we're operating according to the Spirit, as someone in a covenant relationship whose behavior is now governed by that relationship, by that connection. But he doesn't stop there, right? He goes on to explain what that looks like. If you're walking according to the flesh, he says now in verses 19 through 21, same chapter, now the works of the flesh are evident, meaning they're obvious. It becomes very clear, Paul is saying. No one has to wonder, oh, I'm not sure if that, no. Paul says when you operate in the flesh, it's on wide display. It's evident. Well, Paul, what does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Paul says it looks like sexual immorality. It looks like impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Oh, man, that's a long list. Paul says, and things like these. Means there's more. There's other stuff. Paul says, this is a letter. I can't just list everything. But I tried to hit major categories to let you know 
that if you're operating in these fields, in these categories, in these spaces, you're operating according to the flesh. But we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. What I like about Paul is that he just doesn't tell you thou shalt not. He also comes and says what thou shalt do. And he goes on to say in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this contrast of what, he, uh, of what we do, right, when we live according to the flesh versus according to the spirit, couldn't be any more stark, couldn't be any more diametrically opposed. And, and in the context of taking the name of the Lord in vain, some call themselves the people of God. Some profess to be in a covenant relationship with God, but their actions indicate something different. It's evident, Paul says. It's clear. Think about it, think about it, think about it. When we show up claiming the name of God, people are expecting to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But for some of us, when we show up, instead they get sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Is he going to read the whole list? Yes, I am. Enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And look, they say to themselves, I don't need the Lord to live like that. As a matter of fact, I might even be living better. Oh my goodness. Than that in some regards. And we've communicated to them and to the outside world and to anyone listening and looking that the name of the Lord is meaningless. It's worthless. It can't change anything. It didn't bring about any change of desires. I'm, I'm, I'm bearing the name of the Lord in this sexual immorality, in this impurity, in this sensuality, in this, you see what I'm saying? God says, don't take up my name unless you're willing to be a priest and a holy nation. So, we can take the Lord's name in vain by what we do, but we can also take the Lord's name in vain by what we say. But let's dig just a little bit deeper and look at what we say in four different aspects. The first primary one, the one that we all kind of gravitate to, of course, is our words. And this is the aspect that we're most familiar with, like we talked about before. And I would assert it's the one that we're most comfortable with. Because we fool ourselves, and we can fool ourselves into believing that we can do the works of the flesh that Paul laid out in Galatians, but I just need to make sure I don't use the Lord's name in vain. And we then pat ourselves on the back because we believe that we're keeping the commandment. Let's look at Ephesians 4 and 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then in Colossians 3 and 8, Paul also says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul identifies two types of speech that should not come out of the mouths of those who claim the name of the Lord, specifically corrupting and obscene. Now in the Greek, right, corrupting carries with it the idea of speech that is rotten, putrefied, is worn out, it's of poor quality. In other words, it is unfit. It serves no useful purpose. For example, you and I would not serve someone rotten, putrefied meat for a meal. We wouldn't give someone worn out clothes or, or clothes that were poorly made as a gift. And Paul says, in the same way, don't let things that serve no useful purpose come out of your mouth. And then in Colossians, he says, no obscene talk. And the word obscene means foul and offensive and disgusting according to an accepted standard. Hmm. Some ask, some debate the question, is it okay for Christians to curse? <clears throat> and I'm not standing up here to give you a yes, no. I think, though, a better question to ask is, or a better list of questions to ask is, will the words of my mouth bring glory or shame to the name of the Lord? Do the words I choose to use indicate that I'm trying to be holy and set apart like my heavenly Father is holy and set apart? Can someone listening tell that I'm a child of God simply by the words that are coming out of my mouth? If I say what I want to say, how I want to say it, when I want to say it, and then follow that up with, now let me tell you about Jesus the Christ, how well would that be received? I think we have a problem in the church. We're always trying to figure out Can I say such and so and so? What about, why is it that folks that have been set free from sin want to see how close I can get to old nature stuff? How close can I keep my life the way it used to be and not live this newness of life? Instead of asking, well, is it okay for me to do that? Why don't I say I'm striving for set-apartness and holiness in every aspect of my life? And if anything, God will say, son, you didn't have to go that far. I'll say, that's okay. Let me on in. But we've got this thing in us. Ah, I know what it is. What's the bare minimum I need to, to do? What's the least amount of holiness I can let take over me? What's the least amount of sanctification I can let set in? What's the least amount of sacrifice? What, what are the, the fewest number of desires I need to let go of? I just, what's, the, what's the minimum score? for me to still be a child of God. Man, man, man. Another aspect of taking the Lord's name in vain by what we say is our intent. 
James 3 and 10 says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. How many of us know that you do not have to use not one single curse word to curse somebody out? And that's the problem with some of us in here today. We, we, we pride ourselves on being able to slice people up and down without ever taking our sword out of its sheath. And if this is where you are, we need to know, right, that this is a form of legalism. Listen at me now. And what I mean is, is that you believe that as a child of God, you shouldn't use curse words. And so you're careful not to curse, but you still find ways to damage others with your words. And I don't mean using replacement words like darn and shoot, right? But you know what you do when you do it. When you're in an argument, you know that you string your words together. You bring up stuff from the past. You make passive reference to get these subtle jabs and pokes to hurt, to belittle, and to provoke. And all the while, never said a curse word. Because the old me, the old you would have what? Only took two minutes to do what you did in 20? So our words, our intent. Another aspect is our testimony. Stay with me on this one. 1 Peter 3 and 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I'd wager to say that most of us have never ever thought about it like this about how we handle our testimony of redemption being tied into taking the Lord's name in vain. And the verse indicates that this can actually show up in two different ways. Look, we need to, one, the verse says, be prepared to make a defense. Uh, let me say that again. We need to be prepared to make a defense. Yeah, you might have to study something. You might have to open your Bible other than just now. And then we got it on the slide, so some of us is like, oh, shoot, okay. Right? But it says that we need to be prepared. Am I saying you got to get a seminary theological degree? No. But you need to know what it says. You don't need to have somebody that doesn't believe what you believe back you into a corner because they know your Bible more than you do. I've seen it. Go on YouTube. Have some, you run into some black Hebrew Israelites, they'll have you thinking you part of the lost tribe if you're not careful. <laughs> so we need to be, one, prepared to make a defense. But then it says, two, when we do so, mm-hmm, it needs to be done with gentleness and respect, not argumentatively and, and combatively. And when we don't do either of these, what we're doing is we're failing to remember or to acknowledge that we were called to be a kingdom of priests. What is it that priests do? Priests facilitate 
They mediate the meeting of people with God. If I cannot articulate not an explanation of church history from the very beginning to today, but what did Christ do for you? How did he change your life? If I can't articulate my testimony, or when I do articulate my testimony, I'm being argumentatively, uh, argumentative and combative, how well am I fulfilling the office of priest? We're called to be his ambassadors to represent him well to others and, again, facilitate the relationship, right, of folks coming to him. And when we fail to tell others about our relationship experience or are harsh and dismissive with others, even in the telling of our experience, we are being poor priests. Lastly, we take the Lord's name in vain by what we say when we incorrectly teach God's word. 1 Timothy 1 and 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Man. This isn't just about teaching something outside of the Bible. Some, some different something, right? Something that's completely out of the Bible, but it's also about taking what the Bible is clearly communicating and teaching that it either doesn't mean that or it says it means something else. It's just dis disregard it altogether. Oh, yeah, I see what it says, but just kick that out. <laughs> All because of current cultural norms have changed. Long-held doctrines and truths of the Bible, like the sinfulness of man, the character of God, the nature and the purpose of Jesus Christ, the definition of marriage and sexuality, the means to salvation, the role and purpose of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a godly woman, and on and on and on are daily being unraveled, being twisted and being blurred and misrepresented by, at its best, uninformed teaching and by, at its worst, Satan teaching. Now, I know some of you are thinking, boy, that's a harsh claim. Satanic teaching, Charles? Can't some people maybe just be mistaken and wrong? Yes, they can be. But let me, let me turn your attention quickly to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes alongside Eve, and what does he say? Did God really say? Did God really say? And what I'm trying to get you to see, right, is that this unraveling, this pulling at the threads of God's truth and the word of God is not anything new. I know we think it's new because you see more of it on social media, you see more of it on TV, you hear about it more, but it is as old as the Garden of Eden. And what the Garden of Eden lets us see very clearly is that when people come to pull at the thread of what God has said, they are being like the Satan. Did God really say? Is that really what he meant? God said, don't touch her, eat, don't eat, don't eat. <laughs> is that really? Let me tell you what it really means. 
He really just doesn't want you to be like him. And we see from the very beginning all the way to now, different doctrines. Paul is even dealing with it, right? He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you're a young pastor of this new church. Do not let these folks teach a different doctrine than Jesus Christ crucified. And when we teach incorrectly, either by omission or commission, we are not bearing the Lord's name accordingly. So we've explored how what we do and how what we say can be ways in which we take the Lord's name in vain. And lastly, we're going to look at how uh, taking the Lord's name in vain can be done by what we think. And this is where we'll land this plane. Romans 12 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is admonishing us to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to be pressed into the form, into the mold, into the image of this world. And, and I know that it's, it's, sometimes I think we, we, we don't realize just how pertinent that is. The reason why it's pertinent is not just because the world is trying to do that. The reason why it's pertinent is because that's the mold that fits for a lot of us, for all of us. That's the mold we came out of. That's the way of thinking we came out of when we were saved. So it's comfortable. It seems right. It's how I used to think about things. It maybe is how I still think about things. Paul says, do not be conformed into that mold. Don't be pressed into another form. Well, how can I keep from that happening to me, Paul? Paul says you have to have your mind renewed. And this carries with it the idea of a complete change. It's not just kind of dusting off and shining it up and kind of smoothing out the edges, but it is not just a change in how we think, not even just a change in what we think about, but it's also about what our minds dwell on and, and, and how we entertain ourselves and how, what do we turn over and over and over in our minds, even what we allow to enter into our minds. And this is critical because we can do the right things when others are watching. And we can say the right things when others are listening. But when it comes to our thoughts, there's not a lot of communal oversight in that area of my life. Not a lot of believer-to-believer -believer accountability when it comes to my thoughts, Pete. We can be thinking all sorts of things, entertaining all kinds of things that your spouse, that your parents, that your children, that your friends, that your pastor, the congregation may never, ever find out about. Ah, but here lies the misconception about our thoughts and about our thought lives, and that is that it's private, it's secret, it's of no consequence. As long as we maintain the doing and the saying of the right things, that's, that's all we've got to do. I can just kind of think and focus on what I want to, but that's just it. What we say and what we do ultimately is determined by what we think about, about what we dwell on, 
about what we entertain. Don't get me wrong, we can maintain for a while. You can hold your breath for a while. But at some point, you keep dwelling on certain things. You keep uh, uh, turning certain things over in your mind. You keep uh, strategizing about certain things. And eventually, that's going to show up in what you say and what you do. Paul says it's evident. Oh, I, I can tell what you've been thinking about. It's evident. I can tell what your thought life is like. It's evident. I can see you coming from a mile away what you've been thinking about. It's evident. So we have to be intentional about our thought lives, and it starts with three things. The first thing is awareness. We have to be aware that there is a need to guard our thoughts. And every time we sit under the sound teaching of God's word, it's like a mirror that's being held up in front of us. It's showing us our true reflection. It's showing us what the world looks like and how both truly look in light of God's word, highlighting those things that are inconsistent with him, which is why it is so important that we teach his word accurately. Secondly, avoidance, right, to guard our thoughts, we must practice proactive and intentional avoidance. By avoiding those things, those people, those circumstances and situations that chip away at where we're weak, that plant seeds into our minds, that give birth to thoughts and to images and to concepts and to desires that run counter to God's standards, this might even mean that we might have to avoid people, places, activities, shows, music, events, etc. that in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong. But because of how we're wired, they pluck that string. And we need to stay away from them. Charles, that seems awfully harsh. That seems a bit legalistic. That seems like you're not giving us a lot of grace. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus says that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus says that, guess what? To bear the, names, the Lord's name in vain, or to not bear the Lord's name in vain, might take some drastic measures. To be effective priests in a world that is running counter to what you're preaching about might take some drastic measures. Well, Charles, it's only this, it's only that. Is it causing you to sin? Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's the only place where I can get updates on what my family is doing. Is it causing you to sin? Yeah, well, you know, I'm only just, I'm just listening to the beat. You know, I don't really care. Is it causing you to sin? How close can I get? Elder Wright, that's the message I want. How much can I still hang on to and still be good with God? Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He says, it'd be better for you to be blind and unable to use a hand, right, than to go into eternal separation from God. The problem is, is that we value too much what that eye is looking at. And we value too much what that hand is messing with. And the thought of not having that 
is worse to us than walking closer to the one who saved our souls. And I'm saying our. I'm throwing myself in this bucket. I'm not y'all. Lastly, to guard our thoughts, there has to be accountability. And this one is hard for us in general, right? more specifically because in our Western culture, uh, it's based on kind of this Lone Ranger mythology, which is really interesting. If you study it, you'll see it. But uh, this idea that you don't need anybody. We're all self-made individuals. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah, I did it. You can do it. I did it on my own terms. That is like not true at all. But it's the story. It's the narrative we like to tell ourselves. And then that bleeds into our church lives where we need accountability, where we need iron sharpening iron, where we need brother to brother and sister to sister encouragement and accountability. The idea, right, or the notion of being a solitary, loner, individual that possesses the ability and capacity to process and deal with everything that life throws at you is it simply put a trick of the devil hmm. who wants to ultimately separate us. He wants us to be isolated. The Bible describes him as a roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour. And what, if you've seen any National Geographic show, who does the lion go after? The gazelle that's off by himself. He doesn't chase the herd. He knows, I can't do nothing with that. It's this one over here that's off by themselves. That's the one I got my eye on. And what do we do? We come in here, I got it, I'm good, I'm, I'm up, 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 up. And you can't even see, you ever seen, you know those shows, National Geographic, that gazelle be eating leaves and grass, and that lion is just easing up, right? And that's some of us, off isolated, don't want to share nothing with nobody. You are struggling right now. I got it. I'm good. Satan is just crouching, coming. Brother, why don't you call? Why don't you let me know? I, I'm good. I'm good. Why don't you come to the brother fellowship? No, no, I'm good. Why don't you come to the women's room? No, I'm good. I got it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. Satan said, all right. I'm going to show you. And here's the thing. The thing that you don't want to share with nobody, I guarantee you, everybody is either dealing with it, has dealt with it, or will deal with it. There's nothing that has fallen you that is uncommon to man. Oh, you thought these were just little, little, little sayings, little, little, little emoji uh, tags, stuff you can put below your picture, smiling. God bless. No. This is God giving at the author of life, instructing us on how to. What is it you said, Jesus? Have the life and have it more abundantly. You over there thinking, I can't tell nobody about this. So in conclusion, 
And somebody said, amen. That's right. It is finished. Yeah. In conclusion, my hope and my prayer is that um, we've gained a greater appreciation and understanding for what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's more than just not calling his name out, like we said, when we're frustrated or when we're scared or when we're angry, but it really has an eye towards us being his ambassadors in this world, his priests introducing him to a dying world who desperately needs to not just meet him, but enter into a covenant relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And how what we do and say and think can either be a stamp of credibility or a mark of shame on his name. Now, to be clear, God is not held hostage by a person's disobedience as he will just move them out the way and raise up another. I was thinking about that. I was like, man, there's nothing worse for anybody that's played any sports for the coach to take you out put you on the bench and put somebody else in. Nothing worse, right? <laughs> Nothing worse. And you're thinking, coach, what? Are you, what, are you, what? Ah. He's like, yeah, you, you wouldn't get it done, right? Right? But here's, here's the crux of the matter for us today. Like the example I opened up with, with the marriage, God is standing up here and he's looking at you in all of your individualism. <laughs> and he's waiting, beckoning for you to come on down the aisle. Come on. Be joined to me in covenant relationship. Come on. Leave that individualism back at the door and Walk into a new life of fellowship and relationship with the God of all creation. Take my name upon you and watch me make you into a kingdom of priests, into a holy nation. This taking the Lord's name in vain is only applicable to those who have actually entered into that covenant relationship. That's why God says, now look, if you keep my commandments, if you follow my covenant, then I will be your God and you will be my people. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.